the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you along for the ride. Uh, Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Jaquel Crow. She's a teenager. She's also an author. Her book is titled This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms Your Teen Years. She is living in those teen years and encourages her peers to do the same. Jaquel will join us uh, later this hour. Then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jeremy Dice. He's senior counsel at First Liberty. We're going to talk about the first 10 nominees for a federal court. Uh, that, of course, will have to be submitted to the Senate for the advice and consent function given it by the Supreme, by the uh, Constitution, rather. Uh, we'll talk uh, more about these nominees, what their caliber is, if you will, and who some of them are. And uh, we'll also talk with Kay Marshall Strom. She's going to be one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming Oregon Christian Writers Conference. This time around, it's in Eugene. This is their spring conference. And if you'd like more information about that, we'll be providing it when she joins me at about 530 uh, this afternoon. If you are a writer, writer and you uh, and you happen to be a believer it doesn't mean that your writing necessarily reflects your faith but you are a believer and you are a writer this is a great group to be a part of to help encourage you to provide you with some great resources to help you along the way we'll talk with k marshall strom about the spring conference and then of course they have their summer conference uh coming up in the uh, i believe that's in august so we'll talk more about that when she joins us in the second hour. Well, there was breaking news just a short time before the program began today that changed the course of the start of today's program. But if you haven't yet heard, President Donald Trump abruptly fired FBI Director James Comey today, saying it was necessary to restore public trust and confidence in the nation's top law enforcement agency following several tumultuous months. One of the big questions that this has raised is why now and what was the mitigating circumstance that led to this decision? Well, the FBI is one of our nation's most most cherished and respected institutions, the president said in a statement. And today will mark a new beginning for our crown jewel of law enforcement. Well, the White House said the search for a new FBI director was beginning immediately. The White House made uh, the stunning announcement shortly after the FBI corrected a sentence in Comey's sworn testimony on Capitol Hill last week. Comey told lawmakers that Huma Abedin, a top aide to Hillary Clinton, had sent hundreds of thousands of emails to her husband's laptop, including some with classified information. Well, today, the FBI said in a two-page letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee that only a small number of the thousands of emails found on the laptop had been forwarded there, while most had simply been backed up from electronic devices. Most of the email chains on the laptop containing classified information were not the result of forwarding the FBI said now why they were there and if it was appropriate for them to be there at all and how they arrived is another question. But uh, correcting what James Comey had said 
uh, was the reason for announcing an, an broadening investigation into Hillary Clinton and the use of her email server. Now, Comey is 56. He was nominated by the president, uh, or I should say by President Barack Obama for the FBI post in 2013. To a 10-year term, he was praised for his independence and integrity. He has spent three decades in law enforcement, has been no stranger to controversy, but certainly in these last um, several months, that controversy has swirled in ways that I'm not sure uh, James Comey could ever have recovered. Uh, he inserted himself in ways that is uh, uncommon for an FBI director, and that has resulted in his firing today by President Donald Trump. Also in the news, uh, thousands of workers were warned to take cover after a tunnel collapse and a shuttered Washington plutonium uranium extraction plant that was previously used in nuclear weapons production. The tunnel at the Hanford plant building, known as Purex, was full of contaminated particles, still is, including radioactive train cars that transported fuel rods. Uh, The entire site is about half the size of Rhode Island. Um, Hanford is located about 200 miles southeast of Seattle. Well, the, the 20 feet by 20 feet area that suffered the collapse sits over a tunnel, which is hundreds of feet long. Eight feet in soil covers the, the tunnel, and the soil appears to have collapsed into the tunnel, according to authorities. Well, this is a serious situation, and ensuring the safety of the workers and the community is the top priority. So says uh, those overseeing. The Department of Energy informed us, says Governor James Inslee in a statement, uh, that a tunnel was breached that was used to bury radioactive waste from the production of plutonium at the, Har- uh, the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. And the governor added that the White House had been in communication with him. It's a serious situation, ensured the, ensuring rather the safety of workers and the community is the top priority. Our understanding is that the site went into immediate lockdown in which workers were told to seek shelter and all access to the area has been closed. Um, It's believed that no radiation had been released and um, none of the plant's 9,000 workers were hurt, according to a spokesman for the Washington State Department of Ecology, Randy uh, Bradbury. About 3,000 workers remain sheltered on the site uh, today, according to the Oregon Public Broadcasting. Well, a uh, worker today noticed a collapse uh, of dirt above the tunnel earlier in the day, triggering the evacuation. It's not an active work site, uh, according to the Department of, um, uh, of Ecology. Uh, Speaking to the press, there is no public danger, they say. Firefighters were on the scene. The first responders were reportedly getting closer to the area of the uh, the collapse, rather, for a visual uh, inspection. This uh, is a good time for um, using one of those little robot cameras, which is precisely what they're uh, going to be using to uh, also gain some samples of the air uh, and uh, the soil. There were no workers uh, in the tunnel at the time of its collapse. So again, the public is not believed to be in danger. Well, for those of us who perhaps haven't thought much about Hanford lately, it's a 500 square mile reservation. It was established by the Manhattan Project during World War II. It made plutonium. It's a key ingredient in nuclear weapons. Hanford made the plutonium for the atomic bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan, and much of the plutonium for the nation's nuclear arsenal. It's located about 200 miles southeast of Seattle and is half the size of Rhode Island. Now, the mishap that took place today occurred atop one of two rail tunnels under a plant located in the middle of the Hanford site. The Energy Department says soil collapsed uh, two to four feet. That's about a half uh, uh, to 1.2 meters Uh, over the 400-square-foot area. The agency says the rail tunnels are hundreds of feet long, with about eight feet of soil covering 
uh, the top of them. The area contains about 56 million gallons of radioactive waste, most of it in 177 underground tanks. Well, the latest estimate to finish the overall cleanup of uh, Hanford that's not related to today's events, but uh, historically, uh, is more than $107 billion, and the work would st- uh, take until 2060 to complete. The Energy Department has spent about $2 billion a year on cleanup work uh, in an effort to reach that ultimate goal at Hanford. Now, we're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to take a look at some of the top news of the day and also look forward to a conversation with Jaquel Crow, who is a teenager and an author. Her book, This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Toyota of Vancouver. Well, NSA Director Admiral Mike Rogers cast a dash of doubt today on the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia-tied hackers sought to help Donald Trump in the 2016 election, explaining for the first time in public testimony why his agency had only moderate confidence in that judgment. Well, testifying before a Senate Armed Service Committee hearing, Rogers affirmed that he and the NSA were highly confident the Russians sought to hurt Hillary Clinton in the election. But Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican out of Arkansas, asked Rogers, who also heads the U.S. Cyber Command, why the NSA differed on this, uh, the related conclusion about Trump in the January 6th intelligence report on alleged Russian interference in the election. Well, that conclusion stated that the Russian government aspired to help President-elect Trump's election uh, chances when possible by uh, disc- discrediting Senator, or rather Secretary Clinton, and publicly uh, contrasting her unfavorability to his. Well, the FBI and CIA backed that uh, with high confidence, but the NSA only held that judgment with moderate confidence. Well, Cotton noted that fellow Senator Elizabeth Warren during the hearing called Trump's Russia's uh, preferred candidate and asked Rogers to explain the discrepancy. I wouldn't call it a discrepancy. I'd call it an honest difference of opinion between three different organizations. And in the end, I made that call, Rogers said. He added that when he looked at the data for each of the other judgments, there were multiple sources and he uh, could exclude every other alternative rationale. But for this particular conclusion, it didn't have the same level of uh, sourcing and the same level of multiple sources, he said. He noted that he still agreed with the judgment, but he wasn't at the same uh, confidence level as the CIA director, John Brennan, and FBI director, James Comey, who was ousted earlier today. Uh, probed further by Senator Tim Kaine, a Democrat out of Virginia, who was Clinton's running mate, uh, Rogers clarified that while he was highly confident the Russians wanted to prevent Clinton from winning and the, to undercut her effectiveness if she did win, he was only moderately confident the Russians actively wanted Trump to win. The FBI, CIA and NSA were all in complete agreement about the Clinton-related conclusion in the report, which stated Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the U.S. presidential election. Russia's goal Goals were to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency. Earlier in Monday's hearing, Rogers also testified that there had been no reduction in Russia's efforts to affect the outcome of other uh, countries' elections and warned about the dangers of state and non-state actors moving from data extraction to data manipulation. Chairman John McCain A Republican out of Arizona asked Rogers if he had seen a reduction in Russian efforts to meddle in elections and pointed toward alleged interference in Sunday's French presidential election. No, I have not, Rogers said, adding that the U.S. needs to publicly out Russian behavior. They need to know we will publicly identify 
this behavior, which I'm guessing they probably already know by now, but that's just me. Well, the White House said Monday that then-President Barack Obama was no fan of General Michael Flynn when he advised President-elect Donald Trump against hiring him as a national security advisor during their meeting at the White House. These were reasons that had nothing to do with his ties to Russia, but their disagreement over uh, U.S. military policy. Uh, Says White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, Uh, When asked why Trump ignored Obama's warning, the president doesn't disclose details of meetings that he has, which in this case was an hour long meeting. But it's true that President Obama made it known that he wasn't exactly a fan of General Flynn's, while frankly, uh, shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that given that uh, General Flynn had worked for President Obama, was an outspoken critic of President Obama's uh, shortcomings, specifically as it related to his lack of strategy confronting ISIS and other threats around Uh, that we're facing America, Spicer said. So the question you have to ask yourself really is, if President Obama was truly concerned about General Flynn, why didn't he suspend General Flynn's security clearance, which they had just reapproved months earlier, Spicer added. Well, Obama uh, fired Flynn when he was head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Additionally, why did Obama administration let Flynn go to Russia for a paid speaking engagement and receive a fee under that security Um, uh, apparatus and under his watch while serving in that administration. There were steps that they could have taken that if that was truly a concern more than uh, just a person that had uh, bad blood, the press secretary went on to ask. If a sitting president raises the name of one individual, why wouldn't that give the president-elect pause, a reporter asked. If you know what we uh, knew at the time, which is that the security clearance that had that he had had been approved in April of that year, uh, and they took not only uh, and they t- they uh, took, he says, not only did they reapprove it, but then they took no steps to suspend it. So the question has to be, what did they do? Uh, if they had real concern um, beyond that, not liking him for some of the comments that he made, Spicer said, making the distinction between uh, the comments made by the president that had to do with national security interests or uh, personal uh, vendetta against an individual who served in his administration. You can decide for yourself. Well, President Trump's top military and foreign policy advisors are pushing for an expanded U.S. role in fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. The Washington Post is reporting, citing U.S. officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity and probably should not have. The Post reported the plan would give the Pentagon more power in dealing with the Taliban, both in terms of deciding on troop numbers for Afghanistan and ordering airstrikes. And while Trump has not yet approved the plan, it has already won the approval of top cabinet members, according to the report. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster is said to be the catalyst behind the new strategy, prompting critics inside the White House to dub it McMaster's War, with about 8,400 U.S. troops already on the ground in Afghanistan. The plan would add at least an additional 3,000, the report said. The strategy prompted in part by Afghanistan's deteriorating security situation and Trump's desire to start winning again would mark a major turnaround from former President Barack Obama's moves to gradually decrease the number of U.S. forces stationed in Afghanistan. Meanwhile, if the Trump administration does send thousands more American troops to Afghanistan to counter the growing insurgency, the soldiers will find the devils in baggy pants waiting for them. The army has already announced that 1,500 men and women from a key brigade in the vaunted 82nd Airborne Division, whose Luciferian moniker owes to uh, their battle dress and demeanor, will be sent to the war-torn nation this summer. It's an advice and assist mission, but if things go south, the 82nd is rough and ready. Well, the devils in baggy pants are well-trained, well-equipped, and ready to assist our Afghan partners as part of the uh, Resolute Support Mission, says Colonel Toby Masig, 
uh, commander of the division's 1st Brigade combat team since uh, spearheading Allied assaults in, in Italy and Anzio in 1943. The Devil Brigade, Brigade rather, has accomplished its submissions through disciplined initiative. The Devils in baggy pants are well-trained, well-equipped, and ready to assist our Afghan partners as part of a resolute support mission. Uh, well, the Lieutenant uh, Colonel Joe Bocchino, the spokesman for the 82nd, told Fox News the combat brigade deployment was not uh, a ramping up of the U.S. military in Afghanistan, is not related to these, uh, the plan that was just referenced. This is not a change in mission there, and this is not an increase in forces. The mission of the 82nd Airborne Division is to, with the, within 18 hours of notification, strategically deploy, conduct forcibly uh, entry parachute assault, and secure key objectives for follow-on military operations in support of U.S. national interests. So while 1,500 uh, U.S. military personnel are heading to the area, they are simply there, as we are told, for advice and assist missions when called upon to engage. We'll certainly continue to monitor whether or not the uh, administration approves the uh, plan for a, a larger presence in Afghanistan for the fight against the Taliban that this um, individual who spoke on condition of anonymity and should not have spoken suggests the the, uh, uh, cabinet is currently considering. Well, a federal appeals court expressed strong skepticism on Monday toward the president's claim of authority in the first hearing on his revised travel ban, signaling in a lively oral argument the judges uh, could strike down parts of the executive order that sought to suspend travel and refugee admissions from certain mostly Muslim countries. At issue is whether the ban violates the religion clauses of the First Amendment, the Due Process Clause of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, and the ban on nationally discrimination, uh, nationality discrimination in the issuance of immigrant visas contained in a 65-year-old congressional law. It has become a major test of presidential power, especially in the area of immigration. It's also a test on what uh, constitutes uh, legal utterance. Uh, they are referring to statements that were made during the campaign and not the, the document itself. And that would set a precedent in and of itself. So that's another element to consider and to watch for in this decision making. The case before the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which was once reliably quite conservative, not so much now, is the first of two public judicial hearings on the revised presidential order. A San Francisco-based federal appeals court will separately review the issue next week. The White House frames the issue as a temporary move involving national security, A coalition of groups in opposition call the order blatant religious discrimination since the six countries involved are mostly Muslim populations, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria and Yemen. They also have in uh, in common that they are failed states or states that are hostile to the United States and exclude 44 other predominantly Muslim countries. But a majority of judges on the court raised uh, previous statements by then candidate Donald Trump on preventing Muslim immigration to uh, to question his motivation for issuing this revised executive. Order. Would anything but willful blindness prevent the court from considering the president's campaign rhetoric, asked one judge, Henry Floyd. He never repudiated what he said on the Muslim ban, the judge Robert King said. It's still on his campaign website. And national security consideration alone doesn't give him the right to violate the establishment cause, a clause rather, suggested Judge D- Diana Griffin Motts. While other judges questioned whether some of the plaintiffs challenging the ban, including relatives of those denied entry into the United States, had standing or a basis to bring lawsuit challenging um, multiple parts of the ban. And some of the bench grew frustrated when the ACLU's answers. 
Uh, who makes the national security determination in this case? The risk I am addressing, asked um, Judge Dennis Shedd, another on the circuit court. And when attorney Omar Jadwat demurred, Judge Paul Niemeyer jumped in. You have a problem saying the president as commander in chief has power over keeping Americans safe. Well, 10 of the 13 judges hearing the case on Blanc, uh, on Bonk rather, um, were nominated by Democratic presidents, two other full-time Fourth Circuit t- judges recused, both of whom were named by Republican presidents, uh, which is unfortunate because uh, judges are supposed to be above the political fray. And when a judge has to recuse himself by simply affiliating with the party uh, that the president belongs to, that leaves us in great peril. It suggests that politics do, in fact, uh, work their way into the decisions judges are making rather than a review of what the Constitution says and means and making a decision based on what authority the president of the United States does in fact have, as opposed to uh, what offends some who are raising this issue. So it's uh, it's not surprising. It's typical. And this is the time that we find ourselves uh, living in. And again, it's it's uh, from a legal standpoint, it's quite unusual to regard statements that were made during a campaign in determining whether or not a specific written executive order is constitutional. So we'll continue to follow that as it develops. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with Jaquel Crow. She is a teenager and the author of This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the teenage years, that short space of time when movies, school, music, social media, clothes, peers, and sports can pretty much hijack a teen's life. But there is something more glorious, more important than anything the world has to offer. Well, written by 18-year-old Jaquel Crow. This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years, is a deeply theological yet highly accessible book about how the gospel can radically transform every aspect of any teenager's life. She has addressed eight aspects of a teenager's life in relation to what the Bible has to say, their identity, story, community, sin, spiritual discipline, growth, time, and relationships. And she digs into scripture to challenge teenagers to move beyond the shallow to a deep and vital relationship with God. Though still a teenager herself, she shares what she's learned from God's word about living a joy-fueled, obedience-filled, and Christ-exalting life while she's young. Jaquel Crow is a writer from Eastern Canada who is editor-in-chief and lead writer at The Revolution, and that's with a B, by the way, dot com, and a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, DesiringGod.org, and Unlocking the Bible. She's been writing about living as a gospel-centered young person since age 11 and has published more than 1,000 articles. She joins us today to talk about her book, This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years. Thank you so much for joining us, Jaquel. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, at age 11, what compelled you to begin writing and thinking deeply about what it meant to be a follower of Christ? Well, I have been writing pretty much for as long as I can remember. It is always something I've done because I've loved it. Uh, it's been a way for me to process my life, what's going on in the world. And when I was 11, that was right around the time that I was starting to get into God's Word for myself every day. And that was also uh, 2009, which was uh, a much more popular time for blogs. And so it was kind of at the time that if you wanted to write and you had something to say, you started a blog. And my dad had a blog, and he helped me set it up. 
And at that point, uh, my parents were definitely people who instilled a desire to be consistent and disciplined in me. So I decided that I was going to write for this blog uh, four times a week for as long as I could. And so I started at 11 and just wrote about what I was reading in God's Word, what I was learning in life, uh, different reflections, the books I was reading, and that just continued all throughout my teen years. Well, that's uh, that's really incredible. In what ways do you think our culture, Christian or secular, uh, sell teenagers short? Now, you were 11 when you started out. You're now a teenager. Um, but why, what do you think, how do you think um, we sell teenagers short and their capacity to have a vibrant walk with Christ? In a lot of ways, I think we really have a, a mindset as a culture, and this has sort of um, seeped into the church, that we just generally have low expectations for teens in their spiritual lives. So we expect them to be disciplined and excel in areas like school or sports. But for some reason, we don't have those same expectations for teens when it comes to getting into God's Word for themselves or studying the, the deep, hard truths of theology or having a, a vibrant prayer life on their own. And we just sort of believe that maybe teens aren't smart enough or aren't capable of being that spiritual. And it's just absolutely not true. You look at Scripture, you look at church history, teens are, are really capable of so much more than we expect them to be. Talk a little bit about some of the ways that the the teen years are being hijacked by culture today. Mm, yeah, well, before you mentioned just some of those big ones, so uh, fashion and sports and extracurriculars and sexuality, uh, there are so many things that are competing for a teenager's affections and happiness, and culture is just constantly blaring this message at teenagers that we can find ultimate satisfaction and meaning and joy in these things. They really are begging us to find our our ultimate worth in these things. And the sad reality of that is that none of those things are going to satisfy a teenager or any human's deepest cravings and longings. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Did you find it difficult um, to communicate your deep love and profound commitment to Christ uh, to some of your peers as well as some adults? Yes and no. I think yes, because uh, in one sense, these are difficult things to communicate um, without coming across in the, in the wrong way at all. But no, in that I was surrounded by a lot of young people who are, are very like me, in that I'm just meeting more and more young people who are passionate about following Christ and have taught me so much about following Christ. And so I've learned from so many other young people and so many adults and wise mentors who have taught me how to communicate well and who have really just taught me and impressed upon me the the need to continually be humble and teachable and to always look to Scripture for everything. So ultimately, just seeking to point people to God's Word and Jesus Christ and make very clear that I do not have all the answers, but He does. That's what kept me focused throughout this book. Yeah. How did your decision to follow Jesus change your life? In absolutely every way. I always tell people the book is called This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years, because it transformed my teen years first, and that's how this book was born. So the eight areas that I talk about were the biggest in my life that the gospel changed. So I just think about 
my identity and how that really affected everything. So what kind of clothes that I bought as a teen, what kind of friends I hung out with, how I used social media, what kind of movies that I would watch or wouldn't watch, and ultimately just the focus and aim of my teen years uh, was shifted from trying to glorify myself, from trying to serve myself, to ultimately pursue God's glory and exalt Him in everything that I'm trying to do. Now, some would argue that a teenager really needs to be free to sow their wild oats while they're young and then um, move on to more serious pursuits at some point uh, down the road. You describe what I think is rightly the way the the gospel impacts a life and and, um, uh, produces a transformation. But what do you say to those um, who aren't aren't certain that a, a teenager, a young person, uh, should be so sober-minded about these eternal things. I guess I'm just not sure why they would think that, because <laughs> God's Word lays out a pretty clear expectation for any person who wants to follow Him, uh, who wants to serve Christ, and that expectation uh, is not lower if you're a teenager. The Gospel is too big. Jesus is too worthy to waste our teen years in meaningless pursuits and, and put that off until later. I mean, our teen years... It is a great advantage for us to serve God. Now, that sets us up for a a whole life of seeking to serve and glorify God. And so I would just say, why wait when you have something that is worth uh, living your whole life for, and you can start that as a teen? Well, as we mentioned, the title of your book is This Changes Everything, and uh, you address eight aspects of a teenager's life in relation to what the Bible has to say. The Bible speaks to the young child to the teenager, to the young adult, to the uh, to the elderly. It speaks to all of us, and your life uh, certainly is a reflection of that. Let's talk about these eight areas that you focus on. First, just name them, and maybe we'll pick a few and uh, talk more specifically about them. Sure. So there's identity, there is story, there's community, there's sin, there's spiritual disciplines, there's growth, there's time, and then there's relationships. And these are the areas that your life uh, experience transformation as you walked with the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many others, like the gospel really does radically change every little bitty part of your life. But these are really the, the eight biggest areas. Well, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we're going to look at those areas more closely. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Jaquel Crow. She is a writer from Eastern Canada. She is the editor-in-chief and lead writer at Revolution.com and a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, DesiringGod.org and Unlocking the Bible. Her book is titled This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years, and we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 48 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Jaquel Crow. Her book is titled, This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years. And by the way, she's still in hers, writing to her peers. She's uh, 18 years old. Well, let's talk a little bit about how a relationship with Christ should impact the relationship that a teenager has with their church. Uh, and some of the biggest complaints that teens make about um, churches. What are some of the biggest complaints you said? I think um, perhaps one of the biggest that I've heard is that there aren't that many people just like them there. And to that, I would say I totally get that, because at my church there aren't that many uh, other young people right there. Um, other complaints that I've heard are that it's maybe boring, um, that it doesn't always feel very fun or exciting. And both of those things are a little bit related in that young people, and really 
really anybody, uh, has the temptation to view the church as a place that they go to have their needs met, to uh, fulfill sort of what they're looking for. And that's just not the way the church was designed. The church was designed to be a family, a diverse group of people who are different than us, who we can learn from, and who we can worship and celebrate Christ together with. What do you say to churches who feel like they really need to kind of dumb down the gospel, uh, make um, ministry to young people uh, sort of a circus uh, in order to uh, not only attract but to retain them? Is that is that helpful? Is it insulting? What What are your views on efforts made by the church to make it more appealing and fun? I totally get churches who do that, and I um, think that it's it's good that teen that churches want to engage teenagers and want to reach teenagers because we really are the future church, our generation. But I think that dumbing the message down, that um, making things about entertainment and the show is, is really, again, an example of low expectations that we have for our teens. So teenagers are, are just as capable of listening to sermons, are just as capable of uh, hearing hard lessons, hearing God's Word just explained and taught. And ultimately, I think that what teenagers are most craving is not an experience. They're craving the truth of God's Word. They are craving um, the big eternal answers to the questions that they have. So, so I would say that that should not be the focus, the entertainment, that truth should be the focus. And if we point our teens to that truth, that that's not selling our teens short. That is uh, merely expecting of them what we should expect of them. Mm. I became a believer when I was very young, and through my teenage years, I think one of the things that kept me connected with the church was the fact that the church incorporated me into the the body. We were a community. My faith was taken seriously, and that made all the difference in the world. So I appreciate your making that emphasis both for the teenager and for the uh, the adult church as we uh, endeavor to be a community together. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there uh, you list eight aspects of a teenager's life in relation to what the Bible has to say, and one of them is spiritual disciplines. Uh, spiritual disciplines are a struggle for many adults. Talk a little bit about what those disciplines are and how teenagers can benefit from uh, incorporating them in their walk of faith. Well, I define spiritual disciplines in the book simply as habits that are either uh, outright commanded or are described in God's Word that cultivate um, holiness in our lives, that are things we do as we uh, as we pursue God. They're things we do out of love for God. And so in, in my book I mentioned four, and that is uh, scripture reading, scripture memorization, prayer, and evangelism. And all of those things at the surface seem pretty big, pretty daunting, pretty scary. Uh, but again, I think that they're all things that are commanded of every Christian, and that young Christians are not exempt from those things. And further more that young Christians shouldn't be scared or overwhelmed by those things, but that they are things that, that read massive benefits in a young person's life that breed joy, that breed contentment, that breed a, a deeper, stronger, fuller relationship with God that help us love people better. So these spiritual disciplines are things that I really try to emphasize. We don't do merely because we have to. Uh, we get to do them because we love God so much. We want to obey His Word, and we know that they are going to bless us. Another area you emphasize is, and in fact, it's the first one you address, is is identity. And these days, that's a major issue. What is our identity? Is it 
Is it uh, constricted to what God's word says my identity ought to be, or am I free to establish uh, what I identify identify myself to be? Talk a little bit about um, how uh, following Christ um, transforms and uh, helps to clarify one's identity in the teenage years. Absolutely. Well, when I think of identity, I ask three questions that are related to that. Uh, Who am I? Why am I here? And how should I live? And those are the three questions that I believe every human being is trying to answer. And every young person, especially, is wrestling with these questions and looking to all these sources to find the answers to those questions. And I do believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that is going to answer those questions rightly, that is going to give us a satisfactory answer. And all of those answers are found in God's Word. Who am I? I am a being created by God for God's glory. Why am I here for God's glory to serve Him, and how should I live uh, for Him? And I believe that if every teenager answers those questions like that, that that gives them the lasting identity and meaning and significance that they long for. Another area that you focus on in these eight aspects of a teenager's life is time. There are so many things vying for the attention of of all of us and teenagers in particular, that little screen that we hold in our hand or the larger screen that we can manipulate. Uh, Talk a little bit about this notion that uh, our time is of value and um, dispel perhaps the myth that a young person has all the time in the world and so they can postpone making important decisions that will help shape shape their future and their character. Mm -hmm. Well, a big shift in my mind, because this is an area that I definitely struggle with, is uh, a quote from Jonathan Edwards who said that Uh, Time is even more valuable than money, because money lost can be regained, but time lost never can. So even though we're young and it feels like we have all the time in the world, we actually don't. Our time is finite, our time is limited, and what we do with our time matters. How we spend our youth adds up and leads into how we spend the rest of our lives. So young people, we really are not off the hook for how we spend this time. In fact, we uh, have so much more time than often adults do. We have free time, and we're going to be held accountable for how we use that time. Now, that, of course, does not mean that we can never watch a movie or or play video games, but it means that uh, God's Word calls us to redeem the time, to use it well. And just because we're young, that doesn't mean that we're exempt from that. Another area that you focus on is our sin, Um, that this is something that teenagers need to take seriously. Uh, Talk a little bit about the, the concern, the challenge, and the charge. Well, sin really is where the gospel starts. Of course, ultimately, the gospel starts with God, but then sin very quickly enters the story with us, with humans, and every human is uh, still has this burden of sin that they're dealing with. Even even Christians, we still fight against sin. And this is a thing that can often discourage young Christians, that can hold us back. And I really wanted to devote a whole chapter in the book to talking about uh, what sin is, how to deal with uh, the little sins in our lives, to realize that all sin is an affront, a rebellion against a holy God, and so that it must be repented of, that we must continually turn away from our sin, and to look at the part that the Holy Spirit plays in helping us root out the sin in our lives, to kill it, and to pursue holiness anew. And that's that's terribly difficult, but it is a, a thing that us young Christians were called to. We have help, and that God will empower us to fight sin and pursue holiness. What do you hope your book, This Changes Everything, will ultimately convey to your peers 
Um, and how do you see that shaping your future in terms of God's call on your life, even at 18? Well, I hope that God uses this book to encourage young Christians to let them know that they are not alone, that they they are different because they follow Christ, and that's okay. Um, I, I hope that this book will give them joy and that it will give them practical tools and, and help from God's Word. And as far as what's next for me, I am continuing to seek the opportunities that God is placing in my life. That's really been my whole story, seeking to be faithful in the little things that he's given me and seeing what he'll do with the rest. So I want to keep writing. I want to keep ministering to my peers, and that's really all I know. (laughs) That's all you know for now, but you're you're open to whatever God calls you to do. Well, I really want to um, commend you for the work that you have done in challenging your peers to um, to seek after God in a more serious and, and sober way. But you also balance in your writing that there is joy in this walk of faith. It's not just a matter of uh, harnessing your um, your tendencies and, and walking away from anything that brings joy, but there is a, a joy that you also write about in your book that young people can anticipate uh, when they walk closely with God. Yes, exactly. That is something I love to talk about, that following Christ as a young person is not something that, that sucks out all the happiness out of our youth. It's something that actually gives us the happiness that we're looking for. It's something that should mark our youth with joy. Yeah, with no regrets. Exactly. Yeah, no regrets. Well, Jaquel, thank you so much for your uh, time today. Thank you for writing the book, for challenging your peers, and I look forward to seeing your name uh, in future, as you continue to uh, uh, to write and to call others to uh, greater depth and commitment to following Christ. Uh, well, thank you again so much for having me. Thank you. Again, uh, Jaquel is an 18-year-old. She's written extensively. This is her first book, This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years. And if you have a young person in your life, uh, it's by the way, it's uh, published by Crossway. This might be a great book for them to pick up and it's not an older person like myself lecturing them. It's a young person who has walked the walk, encouraging them to do the same. So, again, this changes everything. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we're going to, um, I guess we're at the top of the hour. We've got news and traffic. When we return, we'll talk with, uh, uh, actually, we'll, in the second hour, Jeremy Dice, uh, Kay Marshall-Strom, all of that in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Five minutes after five o'clock is our time. Uh, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dice this hour. He's a senior counsel at First Liberty. We'll talk about the president's latest federal court nominees. There are 10 of them for different levels of the court, beginning with the uh, the level just beneath the Supreme Court lifetime appointment. We'll talk with him about uh, that we're also going to talk with Kay Marshall Strom. She's with the, uh, or I should say, she's the keynote speaker rather with the Oregon Christian Writers Conference that's coming to Eugene. Uh, their spring conference coming up. We'll give you all the important details. She's uh, one of the keynote speakers. She'll be speaking along with someone else whose name and details we'll give later in the program. So listen up for that. Well, if you've just joined us, you may not have heard that President Trump today fired FBI Director James Comey. That's sort of the breaking news of the day. Abruptly ending what has been a very rocky year-long stretch for the top enforcement uh, officer uh, who came under fire for handling uh, the Clinton email probe and whose agency has been investigating whether Trump's campaign had ties to Russia. Now, in responding to 
uh, responding uh, to a letter of resignation. Uh, President Trump made some rather peculiar statements about uh, even though you assured me on more than one occasion, and I'm paraphrasing now, that you are not investigating uh, me with regard to Russian collusion, uh, I'm still letting you go. That's, again, a very uh, careless uh, paraphrase. Uh, But Trump did say the FBI is one of our nation's most cherished and respected institutions, and today will mark a new beginning of our crown jewel of law enforcement. He told Comey in a brief letter that he could not effectively lead the bureau and a call for new leadership that restores public trust and confidence in law enforcement. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said the president's decision was based on the clear recommendations of Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. A uh, search for a new uh, director will begin immediately. Well, the White House made the stunning announcement that essentially blindsided uh, Comey and his associates shortly after the FBI corrected a sentence in his sworn testimony on Capitol Hill last week. Well, uh, on Tuesday, the FBI said in a two-page letter, the Senate Judiciary Committee, that only a small number of the thousands of emails found on the laptop of uh, had been forwarded there uh, by Uma Abedin uh, to her husband uh, that were classified, um, were at least originally said to have been classified. Uh, that error was apparently unrelated to the firing, however. The Department of Justice officials instead cited his handling of the Clinton probe. Now, as, as far as I know, there's no new information in that area, so it's a rather curious uh, firing with perhaps details to follow. Comey first ran into problems during the presidential election of 2016 when he tried to conclude his investigation into Clinton's use of a private server system for emails while in the State Department. He concluded that Clinton, then the Democratic presidential nominee, had not acted criminally with classified emails, but said she had been extremely careless. He then announced a revived probe regarding the emails and evidence handling of them in the closing days of the race. In fact, the very final days. Clinton had said that largely contributed to her loss to Trump. And while that may or may not be true, um, Comey has defended his actions since. The FBI and other members of the U.S. intelligence community, as well as Congress, are now investigating the extent to which Russia was involved in stealing and making public uh, emails from Clinton's presidential campaign. Uh, Comey was nominated by President Barack Obama for the FBI post in 2013. It's a 10-year uh, term. Comey's 56. Praised for his independence and integrity at the time, he has uh, spent three decades in law enforcement, has been no stranger to controversy. Uh, this last um, nine, 12 months, perhaps the most controversial, Sessions said uh, Comey was fired because FBI needs a fresh start. In his letter to Trump, Sessions said the next FBI director must be someone who Um, who follows faithfully the rules and principles of the Justice Department. Senate Judiciary Chairman Charles Grassley, Chuck Grassley, um, uh, of Iowa, said that Comey had lost the public trust and confidence, and he will uh, be replaced as soon as possible. Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer said the only way the American people can have faith in this investigation is for it to be led by a fearless special prosecutor seizing on the opportunity to suggest that, in fact, the uh, Trump administration must uh, demand, or at least members of Congress uh, must demand an independent um, uh, investigator to resolve this uh, this issue. I think most of the American people would like to see it uh, resolved as quickly as possible, as thoroughly as possible to arrive at a conclusion that everyone can believe is nonpartisan and reveals uh, what may in fact have happened. Well, at the um, the FCC, uh, the narrative dominating the uh, the media this week has been the success or failure of the president's first 100 days. But at the Federal Communications Commission, uh, there is change afoot. The FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, 
revealed his most important challenge yet and change, eliminating the spectacularly net neutrality rules uh, imposed by President Obama's FCC in 2015. Well, the rules uh, deemed Internet service providers such as Verizon and Comcast to be common carriers under the 80-year-old Communications Act. Now, this allowed the FCC to subject those companies to meticulous FCC control over how they provide service, specifically net neutrality rules requiring providers to treat all Internet transmissions equally, even if the sender or consumer would prefer customized service. Well, not surprisingly, investment in a broadband network subsequently declined and innovation such as certain free data service plans was threatened. But uh, the FCC chairman revealed plans to repeal the 2015 open Internet order and return to what he described as the light touch regulatory framework that served the nation so well. Now, there's a lot of... Uh, differing opinions on that subject, but the repeal process is a political minefield. The chairman's success would be a significant victory for free enterprise. Nation and consumer choice would be enhanced, as would high-speed access for millions of Americans. As Pi, the FCC director, said, it's basic economics. The more heavily you regulate something, the less it is you're likely to get. Sure enough, infrastructure investment declined. Domestic broadband capital expenditures decreased by 5.6% or $3.6 billion. It is the first time that such investment has declined outside of a recession in the Internet era. Well, the deregulation proposal is being released on Thursday, and the public will be able to uh, submit comments to the commission, unlike the 25, uh, 2015, when the FCC adopted the 313-page order without any public review. The plan is uh, to vote at the FCC's May meeting uh, on adopting the notice of proposing rulemaking, or rather proposed rulemaking, and presuming that moves forward, the commission would vote at its September meeting to rescind the 2015 order. Now, whether that occurs on day 99 or 101 of the administration doesn't make much difference. The FCC chairman's proposal is a direct strike uh, against what he calls the unparalleled regulatory overreach that ran rampant uh, for the previous eight years. We'll continue to follow that um, that story. Uh, see how much time I have for what I have left here. Thank you. Two minutes. Well, North Korea is apparently at it again, or rather it's continuing what it started five years ago. Artificial islands have been discovered surrounding a um, satellite launching station, a missile development and testing site roughly seven mi- 70 miles northwest of Pyongyang. Satellite images suggest the islands are uh, home to military installations and have been under development for the last five years. Now, while their purpose is unknown, suspicions are high that the islands could be used to launch missiles. Now, those speculations are not far from uh, off the mark, according to uh, the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World, Gordon Chang. North Korea is never up uh, to any good, Chang says in an email statement. Uh, the new facilities, whatever uh, their purpose, will be used for evil deeds, mischief and troublemaking of some sort, end quote. My sense is that the facilities on the new island will be used for missile launches of some kind, especially because they are near uh, so high. North Korea could just be following in its neighbor China's footsteps in recent years. China has reportedly been stocking its uh, disputed man-made islands with missiles. The missile theory is being uh, uh, rebuffed by some North Korea experts and political science professor Dr. Bruce uh, Bechtol. Uh, He doesn't think the islands deserve as much focus as far as the islands being something that could present a real imminent threat to the United States or South Korea. He said, I'm just not seeing it. Well, according to uh, to him, North Korea has far stealthier stockpiles than 
what could be placed on islands easily monitored via satellite. The landmass of those islands is too small to move around missiles, he said. It's interesting that they're developing these islands, but they're probably mostly for civilian use. Well, the islands uh, could very well be used agriculturally, uh, which could benefit North Korea since the country has struggled to feed its citizens for reasons that have little to do with landmass. Uh, they, North Korea, ruined a lot of their soil in the 80s and 90s. Their islands have, been, have the potential to really help them uh, through possible fish farms or oyster farms, he suggests. Or maybe the country has two goals in mind. The North Koreans uh, build about everything for dual purpose, says Stephen Sen, a researcher on unconventional weapons and technology at the University of Maryland, speaking to the Los Angeles Times. So building something that is of military use on the agricultural project is certainly within its uh, usual pattern, but there is some monitoring uh, as to what that may ultimately um, end up being. Now, up next, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He's senior counsel at First Liberty. The president announced uh, 10 federal court nominees. We'll talk about that and uh, what we can expect moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the White House announced that President Trump intends to uh, nominate a slate of 10 conservatives to the federal judiciary. That's building on his successful nomination of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch in his biggest push yet to reshape the federal courts. Well, the list includes five nominees for federal appeals court, which are one step below the Supreme Court and decide far more cases annually than the high court. Two of the nominees are Michigan Supreme Court Justice Joan Larson for the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of of Appeals, and Minnesota Supreme Court Justice David Strass for the 8th Circuit, um, were uh, on the president's list of jurists that released that he released rather during the campaign as potential candidates for the Supreme Court. Federal courts have a total of 129 vacancies, giving Mr. Trump an opportunity to mold the judiciary with a conservative outlook for decades to come. The nominations are lifetime appointments. Well, here to talk about those nominees and others is my guest, um, Jeremy Dice. He's a senior counsel with First Liberty. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. First of all, let's talk about the importance of these judicial appointments. We spend a lot of time and energy focusing on the Supreme Court, but these courts feed into the Supreme Court. And as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, they have a much higher volume and have much more uh, opportunity to influence than does the Supreme Court that's very selective about what it ultimately decides to hear. Yeah, that's absolutely right. America really needs judges throughout the country that that are going to uphold the Constitution and defend our freedoms, and especially the issue of religious freedom. But as you explain, I think President Trump recognizes this too. Uh, these district court and and circuit courts of appeal judges are going to be hearing the the lion's share of the cases that come through the federal system. Let me let me kind of put that in perspective with some Please. numbers. Every year, about a half a million cases are filed within the federal court system. Uh, of those courts, and those go right into the federal district court. That's the lowest level of our federal system. It's three levels, federal district court, circuit court of appeals, and Supreme Court. Uh, of those cases, about 60,000 of them or so are appealed to the circuit court of appeals. Uh, of those 50 to 60,000 cases uh, that are appealed to the Supreme Court, there's about 7,000 that are appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. In 2015, 82 cases were heard and, and an opinion was issued by the Supreme Court of the United States. In other words, the top line figure here is half a million cases are filed each year. 
and 0.01% of them survive all the way through the Supreme Court of the United States. It's extremely important that these positions are filled with men and women who are going to uphold the Constitution and value and defend our freedoms. Now, the president's other nominees uh, for appellate judgeships are from a variety of places across the country. Tell us generally your impression of the, the caliber, the quality of these individuals, these 10, which will be the first of many that have been nominated under the uh, Trump administration. Yeah, look, I think he is he's finding judges who have shown a, a, an interest in defending the Constitution and upholding these religious freedoms or all of our freedoms in general. Uh, and frankly, this is just an outgrowth of his campaign promises that President Trump made along the way, that he would be appointing these judges who have respect for the Constitution. Uh, a far cry different than some of the judges we've seen in, in the past here. Uh, but look, these are men and women that have proven themselves, and not only uh, at the bench level, but at the White House uh, General Counsel's Office, Office of Legal Counsel, for instance, Don McGahn and others that are uh, uh, identifying these potential judges, vetting them and, and uh, pushing their way to the president for nomination. Uh, I think we've got great people in the right places that know the right jurists to be uh, putting forward who will be on the bench for, for quite a while, shaping the civil rights of this country well into the future. Now, one of the things the president didn't do is move uh, to fill any of the four vacancies in the liberal ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that uh, is, of course, it covers California, eight other Western states, including the state of Oregon. It's the most oft overturned court of the uh, of the various circuits. Uh, any explanation as to why that is uh, likely the case and what we might anticipate moving forward? I, I think just a numbers issue right now. As you said, there's 129 vacancies right now. If you take away the Court of Claims and the Bankruptcy Courts, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Court of International Trade, that means there's 121 federal district and circuit courts of appeal cases or judges that are empty right now. And more are retiring by the week. That number has changed actually in the last two weeks. So you can tell kind of the fluctuation that's going on. Uh, but look, I think the president will get around to that and, and will be identifying uh, good men and women who will sit not only in the courts of appeal in the, the Ninth Circuit, but the individual district courts that are spread throughout all those states that the Ninth Circuit covers and throughout the country. Now, as we're looking at these uh, judges, most of the names are not going to be familiar to most of our uh, our listeners. But as we look at these uh, these jurists who have been nominated, some have, uh, have not uh, yet uh, served on the bench, uh, what are the kinds of things that we should be looking for uh, in terms of someone who's going to uphold the Constitution, who's going to read it as it's written, rather than uh, attempt to impose some more contemporary view uh, on what the words actually say in cases uh, that these, these jurists would ultimately decide uh, upon. Yeah, we definitely want judges who, like uh, Justice Scalia, who sets sort of the example for Justice Gorsuch, and I, I think for the entire rubric through which uh, President Trump views judges in general, uh, but judges who are going to be, th- th- who believe that the Constitution means what it says, that words actually have meaning, and, and that that one document is-, is the foundation stone upon which the rest of our country and our freedoms are based, and that they're going to respect that rule of law and not try to make it some sort of living, breathing Constitution that has to adapt and change by the rule of a judge rather than by the instrument that it's provided to be changed in the amendment 
enforcement process. Uh, judges that uh, like like these that I think have been put forward thus far have a respect for the meaning of the Constitution and for what it was meaning at the time that it was framed and that it has application even to this day because it is, after all, uh, one of the greatest legal documents that's ever been drafted in human history. And there's a built-in mechanism for changing it if it, it no longer applies or you, you no longer think it uh, should stand as it does. So taking advantage of that mechanism that's built into it is the way to amend law rather than or amend the Constitution rather than reinterpreting it to mean something it was never intended to mean. I guess the next question uh, has to do with what happens next. We know uh, that for uh, jurists who are not um, uh, nominated for the Supreme Court, the the Democrats uh, under the previous uh, leadership change the rules. What might we expect in terms of these nominees uh, who would be submitted to the advice and consent function of the U.S. Senate? I don't think it's going to be a simple and quiet process if all indications of uh, Justice Gorsuch's nomination and confirmation are any indication. Uh, I, I do think that uh, there will be some arguments here or there, but uh, I think at the end of the day, the majority of our Senate will provide their advice and their consent to these nominations. And uh, I think we're going to see the majority of them, if not all of them, confirmed to the bench. Uh, and, and that's a great thing. When, we're, when we have a, a system that respects the rule of law, when we have have a president who acts in the way that he is supposed to by fulfilling his function to nominate these these uh, appointments there, uh, a Senate that confirms them, and then a, a judiciary that it once installed respects the tripartite nature of our government, that recognizes that it is not a legislature itself, nor is it an executive, mm-hmm. but it is a, a body that is required to identify what the law is. And just keep in mind, again, I know we've said it several times, these are lifetime appointments. Uh, and if you think that one simple district judge doesn't make that big of a difference, you know, the Supreme Court is where it's really at, well, just remember that twice this year a single district judge has overturned uh, the president's executive actions on uh, immigration and, and a couple other things. One judge can make an entire thing go away for an entire country. In fact, in most of these cases, most Americans are going to find themselves through the courtrooms where their civil rights are going to be meted out at the district level, and that's it. So these are extremely important positions and ones that we've got to find the right men and women who are going to support and uphold the Constitution. Well, we'll certainly watch with great interest to what happens in the days ahead as these 10 are vetted by the U.S. Senate and as the president nominates others, we hope that are the same, uh, same caliber. Jeremy Dice, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Jeremy Dice is senior counsel at First Liberty. We're talking about President Trump's latest federal court nominees. Until yesterday, the president had only uh, one other pending judicial nomination. That was U.S. District Judge Amal Thapper of the Eastern District of Kentucky, who's waiting for Senate confirmation for the sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, federal appeals courts have 20 vacancies out of a total of 179 judgeships. They're are also 101 vacancies on U.S. district courts out of 677 total seats and eight other vacancies on the U.S. Court of International Trade and the U.S. Court of Federal Crimes. The president also appointed four judges to district court seats on Monday and one nominee for the Court of Federal Claims. Sean Spicer, the White House spokesperson, said that each of these was chosen for their, and I'm quoting, deep knowledge of the law and their commitment to upholding constitutional principles. Uh, Damien Schiff of the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation uh, 
uh, points out that um, Mr. Schiff won a unanimous uh, ruling with the U.S. Supreme Court. And I should uh, clarify here, uh, the senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute in referring to Damian Schiff, who is one of the nominees, uh, won unanimous ruling at the Supreme Court in 2012 in a case challenging the Environmental Protection Agency. He has been uh, put forth to serve on the Court of Federal Claims, and that's uh, considered a strategic and important position for that nominee in particular. We're going to talk more about the specifics on these uh, nominees as they come up uh, individually uh, in the Supreme, or I should say in the U.S. Senate, not the Supreme Senate, and we'll certainly follow them more closely at that time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Kay Marshall-Strom. She's going to be one of the keynote speakers at the Oregon Christian Writers Conference coming up in Eugene. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you didn't know, today you will. The Oregon Christian Writers Spring Conference is coming up on Saturday, May the 20th in Eugene. The theme, Rekindling Your Passion, Encouragement for the Christian Writer. I don't know of a single Christian writer who doesn't need encouragement. And uh, if you are uh, in that category, I want to encourage you to make note of the spring conference that's coming up at Northwest Christian University, again in Eugene. Dan Klein and Kay Marshall-Strom are keynote speakers. Uh, She joins us now to talk a little bit about the conference. She's written more than 40 books. Three of her novels have received American Library Association Book List Awards. And Two nonfiction books have received uh, Reader's Choice Awards. She has published devotionals, magazine articles, taught a writer's certificate program at Long Beach State, and much, much more. Her keynote address is going to help uh, guide writers to discover that foundational universal truth that you need to be successful and productive. She joins us now to talk about this conference coming up later this month. Kay Marshall-Strom, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you, how did you start writing? And when you began, did you put pen to paper and uh, immediately find this rush of confidence that produced the successful <laughs> uh, books no. and other things that you, uh, <laughs> that you are now known for? <laughs> no. Um, I started writing. Uh, I've always been interested in writing. And I took a course through adult ed, and it was just a group of people who who encouraged each other, and we all thought we were wonderful, and we all had no idea what we were doing. And then I went to a writer's conference, and that's where I found out I didn't know what I was doing, but I could learn, and by the end of that conference, I had my first contract. Ah, you didn't know what you were doing, but you knew that you could learn, and that really is what a writer's conference is all about, isn't it? That's right. That's absolutely right. Now, the conference that's coming up in Eugene is the Spring uh, Conference for Oregon Christian Writers. And the theme, as I mentioned, is rekindling your passion. I know people who write uh, can very easily fall into a discouragement. Uh, and you're going to be offering encouragement for the Christian writer. Now, first of all, let's talk about what we mean by a Christian writer. Is that someone who writes on Christian themes or someone who is a person of faith who is a writer? Or someone who is of faith who is a writer. Yeah. And I encourage people uh, in this category to write for the secular marketplace. If we just write to ourselves, that's encouraging and good, but it's certainly not as wonderful as, we're, as, we, as if we are writing to the wor- for the world. So I'd, I'm big on that. <laughs> now, uh, as I mentioned, you are going to um, talk about some of those universal truths that will... Um, 
uh, take their writing from just being good to really great writing. Uh, talk a bit about the role you're going to play at this conference on the 20th. Well, that's what my keynote will be about, is finding your universal truth. The thing is, especially when, we're, when people are writing personal experiences, which a lot of people want to do, if we're just writing about our own experience, the reader or the person who's listening to us is constantly thinking, yeah, I can top that. Do you know what happened to me? Let me tell you my story. That's what they're thinking. But if it's a universal truth that applies to all of us, it brings, it makes your writing, instead of being the theme, yourself and your experience is just the frame that goes around this universal truth. And, and if we can write that way, and I think of that with my fiction and everything, if we can write that way, we can change the impact we have on our readers. Now, to whom is the invitation extended to be a part of the Oregon Christian Writers Spring Conference? The the listener might assume, well, these are people who are writers uh, officially. They've been recognized as writers. Or maybe it's just for beginners, and if I'm already uh, doing some writing, it's not a conference for me. To whom is this invitation issued? That's a good question. It is is good for all of the above. There will be workshops for people who are just getting started. There will be workshops for people who are trying to find out what they want to do in the writing realm. And there will be workshops for those who need encouragement, who need help over a certain uh, bump, or just need to be with other writers to enjoy the camaraderie. We're talking about the Oregon Christian Writers Spring Conference that's coming up on the 20th. This time around, it's going to be in Eugene at Northwest Christian University, Saturday, May the 20th. Um, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. They encourage you to pre-register. You can do that online up until the 17th. Uh, and then you can also pay at the door. You're welcome to, to uh, do that. Registration on the day of the event will be from 8.30 to 9 a.m. So you certainly are encouraged to be uh, a part of this uh, event. And they hold conferences throughout the year, uh, this being another opportunity to help uh, help you hone your skills, maybe give you some direction um, and so on. Now, you're also going to be speaking with Dan Klein, and the two of you have uh, co-presented t- together before. Tell us a little bit about Dan Klein. Uh, he's my husband, and um, when we married, I already had my writing name, and so I held on to the name I had uh, so we confused people. But we talked through the, the um, adult ed or the extra uh, education opportunities through the UC system, the University of California system, California State University systems, and we designed and taught uh, the Writer's Certificate Program at Long Beach State. So we've done a lot together like that, and we enjoy it. And we also have done a lot of traveling together because a lot of my writing has been based in um, international topics and things like that. So we've um, really spanned the world and enjoyed it very much. My understanding is between the two of you, you visited 42 countries. <laughs> and That's you're, right. You're, Most of them, or a lot of them together, but then not all, uh-huh. some individually, yes. <laughs> now, my understanding is that Dan's going to offer a powerful message for writers who are struggling with the idea of success and what it means for a Christian writer to prosper and what God really expects uh, writers to do uh, with their writing skills. I know we're probably talking to uh, folks listening today who know they have a gift of writing, but seem to think it's a bit presumptuous to imagine that they should pursue their writing 
um, to be read by by others. What do you say to those who are just on the edge and don't quite uh, see themselves as um, as being writers worthy of being read? You definitely need to come to a writers conference. I would say we'll have so many different. Um, workshops available. One of the workshops I'm going to talk about is writing small. Instead of having to start out writing a book or writing a novel, you can write short things, and that's how you can hone your writing and then move into something longer. Um, And Dan is going to talk about um, critiquing and um, the the elements of, of punctuation and, and so forth like that. And he's very, very good at that and has a, has a fun presentation. It's not like being in eighth grade English class. <laughs> well, in addition to the... Tabernathy teaching. In addition to the keynote addresses, there are also going to be opportunities for workshops so folks can right. uh, find things that, that speak specifically to where they are. Uh, in yeah. their writing. And again, we're talking about the Oregon Christian Writers Spring Conference that's coming up on Saturday, May the 20th, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at Northwest Christian University in Eugene. They're encouraging you to pre-register um, uh, online, and you have until May the 17th to do that. It closes on the 17th. You're also welcome to pay at the door. Registration is uh, begins at 8.30 and will end at 9 a.m. So I really want to encourage uh, those of you who have been to a conference to take advantage of this yet another opportunity. Others of you who would like to explore the possibility of uh, writing for others to read, whether that's uh, uh, writing articles or writing books, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to gather with like-minded people to help hone your skills and maybe get some direction. Why is it important for you to help encourage other uh, writers and those who aspire to be writers? Because people helped me when I was starting out, mm. and I could not have really moved forward without that help. I, I think that's that's what we as Christian writers should do. We're not competing with each other. We're all in this together toward the same goal. Well, I so appreciate your uh, joining with your husband, Dan Klein, and sharing at this uh, latest iteration of the Oregon Christian Writers Conference. This is the spring version of it, again on Saturday, May the 20th. Uh, doors open at 8.30 a.m. It will be at Northwest Christian University, and the uh, registration online ends on the 17th, so check that out online. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, and I hope I see you there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Bye-bye. Again, Dan Bye-bye. Klein and Kay Marshall-Strom, a married couple, will be the uh, keynote presenters for this spring conference in Eugene. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to come back in a few moments and, well, wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Did you know there is a faith-based film Oscars award? And they um, they issued the top honors to The Meanest Man in Texas and Unbridled, two faith-based movies. Well, the faith-based film Oscars in Orlando just awarded the best film, uh, The Meanest Man in Texas, the best of fast second place to the movie Unbridled with actors T.C. Stallings uh, from War Room and Courageous and Eric Roberts uh, from Dark Knight and introducing young actress T. McKay. This was on Saturday night, the award ceremony. Uh, isn't officially affiliated with the Academy Awards. It was nicknamed the Faith-Based Oscars since the International Christian Film Festival in Orlando 
um, has become the largest faith-based film fest in the world. It draws films and attendees from as far away as Australia, Israel, with about 2,000 films submitted for consideration this year. So that's pretty significant when you're talking about faith-based films. Unbridled, produced by um, uh, Christy McGoughlin, and directed by John David Ware, was based on the true story, true life story of a teen girl who'd been uh, sex trafficked, abused by step-parents or live-ins, uh, or struggled with bulimia and anorexia, etc. It's a story of redemption and healing. It was the uh, the top uh, winner at the uh, these Oscars. Unbridled director is, uh, in accepting the award, stated, I'm humbled and grateful for our amazing cast and crew, which enabled a hopeful portrait on the canvas of the fight against sexual slavery. You can find out more about that. Um, online. You can just look up, uh, you can Google uh, faith-based film Oscars, and there's more information about films. And you may be surprised uh, to find that there are hundreds and hundreds of them uh, that might be worth looking into. Well, the vast grove of museums that stretch from the U.S. Capitol across the fringes of the National Mall is about to get a new addition, albeit a decidedly less secular one. It is the Museum of the Bible, in Washington, D.C. Well, just three blocks south of the Capitol, the privately funded museum is set to open this November. And though it might seem out of place next to the well-known museums on American history, air and space and more, those behind the project describe it as a future attraction that will draw in a range of visitors through a blend of historical and religious artifacts and interactive exhibits. The goal is to show and to educate people about the many ways that the Bible has impacted America, not just our history, but in terms of civil rights, social justice, to fashion. Steve Bickley, who's the vice president of marketing for the museum, says in an early tour of the museum in the making uh, with reporters from presidential inaugural ceremonies to bedside tables and hotels across the country. The Bible has indeed been a fixture in American life. Bixley says 430,000 square foot facility aims to offer an, a, an immersive experience to people from all faiths of no faith at all. And those who have never even picked up a Bible, the $500 million eight story museum is financed entirely by private funds. Uh, the force behind the design is the architectural firm Smith Group. And while Clark Construction is overseeing the project since its groundbreaking back in 2015, both were involved in the constru- construction rather, of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, the popular site near the Washington Monument. Well, the museum's five central exhibit floors will house 40,000 biblical and religious artifacts, including portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Bibles once belonging to Babe Ruth and Elvis Presley, Uh, The Lunar Bible, the first Bible to travel in space. The first exhibit to arrive at the museum is a 3,200-pound full-scale replica of the original Liberty Bell gifted to the museum by Dr. Peter Lilbach, founder of the Provident Forum. Because of its size, the replica had to be lowered into the building which is still undergoing construction. I suppose you couldn't finish it until that was lowered into it. Uh, But as uh, the museum's founder and president of uh, Hobby Lobby uh, and his father, David, that's Steve Green and uh, and David Green, who have contributed the bulk of the items, uh, say this is going to be something to point our attention back to what influenced uh, much of the founding of this country. Over the last five years, the Green Collection has uh, grown into the world's largest private collection of biblical texts and artifacts, and the Greens gained national recognition in 2012 when they mounted a legal challenge to the contraceptive mandate included in Obamacare in 2014. The Supreme Court uh, in uh, that year ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby and the Green family in the landmark victory for religious freedom advocates. Well, to critics who believe the museum will only present the Bible from a Christian perspective, 
Um, why would uh, the Israel Antiquities Authority be partnering in a project which only promotes Christianity? Uh, he asked in reference to a multi-year agreement the museum signed with the authority to fill gallery space with objects contained in Israel's national treasures. Uh, one of the more interesting offerings is a digital guide with which visitors would be able to design their own tours on their phones and take a virtual tour of the location in Washington, D.C., where the biblical passages can be found. Um, the interior of the Museum of the Bible is, uh, as I mentioned, under construction. There's an emphasis on making the site more than just a building. In May of 2011, the Museum of the Bible launched its first traveling exhibit, a collection of some 400 items that made stops in Colorado Springs and the great Los Angeles uh, greater area, as well as the Vatican and in Cuba. Another arm of the museum is the Scholars Initiative, which pairs together younger scholars with more established analysts to work on artifacts in the museum's collection. Currently, more than 60 universities, six zero universities around the, uh, the world are participating in the Scholars Initiative, and others are in the process of joining. So if you're planning to travel to Washington, D.C. in November, the opening of the uh, Museum of the Bible uh, will take place and you'll have an opportunity to include that in your other travels to the many fascinating uh, books, uh, I should say museums, that make up the Washington, D.C. Capitol Mall area. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Randy Frazee. Randy's the author of What Happens After You Die?, We have a general idea what the scripture has to say, but this is, as he subtitles his book, a biblical guide to paradise, hell and life after death. Lots of people don't like to uh, believe that hell exists, but there are references to it in the scriptures. And we're going to explore what the Bible has to say rather than what popular opinion would have us believe. The book is published by Nelson and Randy Frizee. That's actually Frizee will be with us on Wednesday to talk about, once again, his book titled What Happens After You Die. On Thursday, we'll talk with uh, Charles Dyer. He's the co-author of Clash of Kingdoms, what the Bible says about Russia, ISIS, Iran, and the end times. Now, we know that uh, just yesterday we were talking about a disclosure about the partnership between Iran and North Korea and how Iran is benefiting from the technology of uh, North Korea two of our fiercest opponents here in the U.S. There's been a lot of discussion about the role that Russia is playing in Syria, its connection with uh, uh, some of our uh, most staunch opponents as well. We're going to talk about all of that uh, and the book Clash of Kingdoms, what the Bible says about Russia, ISIS, Iran, and the end times. Charles Dyer will be my guest. And then on Friday, assuming there is no breaking news, as there was earlier today with the resignation, or rather the firing of The FBI director, James Comey, will lighten things up and uh, enjoy a look at some of the lighter news that accumulates over the course of a week. Well, I want to say thank you to Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.